Canon Press presents the weekly sermon from Christ Church, Moscow, Idaho. Copyright 2019. If you would like to find out more about Canon Press materials and products, please call 1-800-488-2034. For a complete list of our products or to order online, please visit our website at canonpress.com. Enjoy the sermon. And God's people said, Amen. Let us worship the triune God. Bless the Lord who forgives our sins. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Gracious Father, our souls wait for you. From you alone comes our salvation. You are our only rock, our only defense, so that we cannot be moved. Our enemies plot in vain against us, against the weak, against the powerless, against your saints. But we know that they are all like a tottering fence, and they shall fall when you cast them down. They are full of lies. They speak pleasant words and words of blessing, but their hearts are full of cursing and deceit. So our hearts wait on you, O God. You are the rock of our salvation, our defense, our strength, our refuge. We trust in you at all times, and so we pour out our hearts to you. All men are but dust in your sight, so we do not fear any man. Presidents, Supreme Court justices, false teachers, manipulative bosses, random thugs, power belongs to you alone, and you will render to every man according to his work. And so we worship you now in the name of Jesus, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end, and amen. amen. Do not let your heart envy sinners, but be zealous for the fear of the Lord all the day, for surely there is a hereafter and your hope will not be cut off. Proverbs 23, 17, and 18. It is sometimes tempting to think that sinners are having all the fun. They do whatever they want, watch whatever they want, say whatever they want, and look, they aren't dead. They seem to be doing well, succeeding in life, having fun. And meanwhile, being a Christian means not doing a bunch of things I really want to do, and apparently not having any fun at the same time. And so we are tempted to envy sinners. But there are two really good answers to this apparent temptation. First, they aren't really having that much fun. Abortion, pornography, abuse, adultery, divorce, estrangement from children, bitterness, alcoholism, drug abuse, depression, suicide, rage, murder, they aren't really having fun. Oh sure, it's fun for about 10 minutes, like the feeling that you're flying in the middle of a free fall. But they're not really flying, they're falling, and they're falling fast. And this leads to the second answer, which is that it's foolish to judge by this life only. There is a hereafter. There is a judgment because there is a God. Doing whatever you want and expecting to find joy is like rummaging around in a trash can expecting to find dinner. Joy is finding goodness and taking pleasure in it. But this presupposes that goodness actually exists in the world that some things are good and some things are, well, bad. Otherwise, there's no such thing as joy. 
But if there is such a thing as joy, and therefore such a thing as goodness, then there's a source of goodness, somewhere it comes from, a standard, a judge overall, and in the end, there will be a reckoning. Those who pursue real joy, real goodness in the source of all that goodness, their hope will not be cut off. But those who insist on decorating prison cells and calling that freedom and fun, they will get exactly what they asked for. Last thing, don't forget. The Bible does not teach that God is the great Grinch in the sky fuming about people trying to have fun. No, that's the devil. Only he knows he has to sell his despair in bottles labeled fun. But God is the one who invented this place. He loaded it with good things and he created us to enjoy it all. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. Father, we confess that we have envied sinners and we have not been zealous for the fear of the Lord. We have forgotten that there will be a judgment and we have despaired, sometimes believing that our hope will be cut off. We confess that this is ultimately to doubt your goodness and your good intentions with us. Like our first parents, you've surrounded us with goodness and loving kindness and blessings without number. And then when there is one thing that you say we must not do, we forget all your benefits. Like spoiled children, we fuss and complain and tell lies about you in our hearts in order to justify our sin. Father, we confess that this envy, this forgetfulness, this despair, and this despising of your goodness is all terrible sin. And we confess that we deserve to die because of it. We deserve to have our hope cut off. But we confess all this as sin, sin that Jesus bled and died for. And so we are bold to ask for your forgiveness for all of it. Please cleanse us and wash us whiter than snow and pour out the spirit of comfort and contentment and joy in our hearts so that we would be zealous for the fear of the Lord all the day. Father, we know that if we in the church regard sin in our hearts, this prayer will be ineffectual and we will not be salt and light in the world. And so we confess our individual sins to you now. Selah. And so we ask all this in the good name of Jesus, and amen. amen. Please rise for the assurance of pardon. Ephesians 1 says, In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. Because of this, and because you've confessed and forsaken your sins in the cross of Jesus, I declare to you that your sins are forgiven through Christ. Thanks be to God. The text this morning is from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. These are the words of God. 
And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Our Father and gracious God, we thank you for the word before us now. I pray that your spirit would be at work in our lives, in our hearts, applying this text, this passage, and all related passages to our condition. And we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the text before us indicates that we are to forgive one another, and I want to talk about what that means. When the Lord Jesus admonished us about uh, not cleaning the outside of the cup only, he was telling us, he was teaching us, he was exhorting us to, to refrain from limiting ourselves to that sort of activity that we can accomplish and that doesn't depend on him. We can clean the outside of a cup. We can arrange things to look decent on the outside. And having arranged it to look decent on the outside, we call it good. We think we're done. I want to begin with an illustration that is aiming at the same point. Every competent house, uh, housekeeper, every competent a uh, person who's ever cleaned a room can tell you that there's a difference between a room being tidy and a room being clean. A room can be tidy and still be dirty. You can straighten all the cushions and still need to deep clean the carpet. You can straighten everything up on a superficial level and someone could glance in there and say, oh, that, that room's put together, but that's simply tidy. It's not clean. Now, of course, rooms can be unclean, they can be dirty and untidy, and they sometimes, once in a blue moon, they might even be clean and untidy, but not, it doesn't usually go that way. Generally, when people uh, have a, uh, what, what do you call it, if they have a, an orderly personality, they gravitate toward things, they gravitate toward situations that create the illusion of them being in control. They get their doctrines straight. They, they have sorted out the doctrines of grace. They've, they know that God is sovereign. They've, they've, got, they've got an orderly reformed understanding of doctrine. Or they go to a church where it's not pandemonium and things are liturgically in order. Uh, but that sort of thing, as good and as pleasant as it might be, is simply tidiness. Right, those things are tidy. Things are put in the, in the appropriate place. I want to talk about forgiveness today, and forgiveness has to do with whether or not it's clean, whether or not things are deep cleaned, whether things have been put together, uh, addressed the way God wants to address them. So, Every time we say the Apostles' Creed, as we did just a few moments ago, we confess that we believe in the forgiveness of sins. Now, this is reasonable, we might think. Isn't forgiveness of sin the entire point? Is, isn't that God's job? Uh, we're, we're sinners, and he's a holy God, and he's supposed to forgive us. Their sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more. That's the heart of the new covenant in Hebrews 8 and Hebrews 10. Uh, that great passage from Jer Jeremiah is quoted. And then when it's quoted again in, in Hebrews 10, he isolates the two uh, great salient features of the new covenant, which is the internalization of the law. I will write my law on their hearts and on their minds and their sins and lawless deeds. I will remember no more. That's it. okay. So of course we believe in the forgiveness of sins. So yes, it is the entire point, but it is also part of the point that this forgiveness is entirely grace and we must never and must never be considered by us as an entitlement. 
It is not something that we deserve. It's not something we get to demand. It is something that is our covenant birthright. We can thank God for his forgiveness because he has promised it to us, but we don't demand it. We don't, it's, it's not something that is our possession simply because we need it. Someone can need forgiveness and not have any right to forgiveness. In other words, if uh, having a right to forgiveness is basically the state of not needing to be forgiven, right? If you, if you had a right to be forgiven, then you didn't do anything bad. If you have done something bad, you've done something that is inexcusable, but thank God, not unforgivable. The, the, but the ground of the forgiveness has to be somewhere else other than in your sin. The fact that you sinned doesn't mean that you have a right to forgiveness. The ground of the forgiveness has to be outside you in the death of the Lord Jesus. So we are given forgiveness, but we don't get to demand forgiveness. And remembering this is tougher than it looks because the human heart wants to veer toward, I'm entitled to this. It's God's job to forgive me. He must forgive me. And when we do that without reference to the blood of Jesus, we are going astray. So in this text, in verse 32, it tells us that forgiveness proceeds from a certain disposition. Forgiveness proceeds from a certain type of heart. Forgiveness proceeds from that disposition. It flows out of a particular kind of character. It flows out of a particular kind of heart. That disposition is one of kindness. The one who would forgive must be tenderhearted. And the word that is translated as tenderhearted here is actually telling us that our forgiveness must be visceral. That is from the viscera, from the gut. So we, we must have... Uh, good viscera. We must be tender-hearted. We must be inclined to forgive. The requirement is then given, which is that we must forgive one another. And the way he expresses this, forgiving one another, means going back and forth, going back and forth. He doesn't say anything like the good guys in church must forgive the bad guys. He doesn't say, oh, of course, I know there are the holy ones over there, and they are much sinned against by the bad guys over there, and because the bad guys over there commit sins, the good guys must forgive them. He doesn't talk to a collection of saints like this in that way. He says, you, all of you, forgive one another. And when I say forgive one another, I am assuming that there's going to be two-way traffic in all kinds of directions. You forgive over there, you forgive over there, you forgive one another. So he says, Forgive, forgiving one another. We are all involved in it, forgiving one another as the occasion demands. The assumption is that life in covenant community will require this kind of thing, which further means that pride of face is out. Not only so, but a constant critical spirit is also out. By pride of face, I mean those who want to be aloof and above it all, they want to say, oh, you schlubs down there are doing things wrong. And, but we're up, up here in the spiritual country club. We don't do it that way. I'm above all of that. Those with a critical eye are down in it, but tangled up in it. So those who have a critical eye are, are in the mix. They're in the fray, but they're very critical, and it's always somebody else's problem. These attitudes are inconsistent with being tender-hearted. So be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. The forgiveness that, ex that is, is extended to one another is forgiveness that proceeds from a tender and sensitive heart. Not a heart that is given to morbid introspection, but a tender and a sensitive heart. Now then, 
and this is quite striking, Paul then requires us to be imitative in our forgiveness. We are to imitate God's forgiveness of us through Christ in how we forgive one another. And this in its turn provides a key to help us understand one of the difficulties that arises with those who want to take the process of forgiveness seriously. That's a difficulty I'm going to address later in the message. But we're, we're told to be tenderhearted, to be uh, open to one another, and we're told to be, to be kind to one another, and our forgiveness of one another proceeds out of that tenderness, not hardness, that tenderness. And as we do this, we must imitate the way God in Christ forgave us. So let's consider the forgiveness transaction, the forgiveness transaction. When someone has wronged somebody else, they have not just transgressed or broken a rule. They've also incurred an obligation. They've incurred a debt, as we see it expressed in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, 12. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And as we all know, debts must be paid. You, when you sin against another, you incur a debt, and debts must be paid. Now, when a sin is committed, the sin by itself may be the thing that has to be paid off, or it might be the sin plus damages that has to be dealt with. So sometimes it's simply the sin. Other times it's sin plus damages. Sometimes it's sin. Sometimes it's sin plus conse consequences. So suppose you get in a quarrel with someone. Not that you do, but we've all read about this in books. So suppose you get in a quarrel with someone, and in the heat of uh, your temper, you call them an insulting name. All right, you lose your temper, you call them an insulting name. When you go to them to put this right, the debt that you owe is the obligation that you carry, the debt that you carry, to seek that, that person's forgiveness. Will you please forgive me for calling you that name? Will you please forgive me for calling you that name? Now, they might rush to uh, patch this up the way many non-believers do, and unfortunately, the way many believers do, and they might say, oh, well, thank you for coming to me since you didn't mean it. And you might say, I have to I'll stop you there. At the time, I did mean it. Uh, you know, I, I meant every word, and I meant it because I wanted to hurt you, and I know that I did, and it was wrong for me to mean it. You're not apologizing for saying something that... Uh, you said but didn't mean. That's just waffling. That's just noodling. That's backfilling. Um, if you, you see this whenever some secularist is caught in some sort of monkey shines and they're forced to apologize, and they will say, they, they will say this, and nobody laughs out loud when they say this, I am sorry to the people of the great state of whatever, or I'm, I must apologize to the American people because what I did was contrary to my core values. When it all boil everything down, I sinned against me. I sinned against me. My core values are noble, upright, and good. Deep down, I'm a good person. Deep down, I'm a good person, and I want you not to pay any attention to what I did and what I'm apologizing for, because that was contrary to my highest aspirations. I remember many years ago, there was a, there was a young man in, in uh, jail in Lewiston, just down the road here, and he was in jail because he had shot his parents. He had murdered his parents. And he was in jail, and he got word in jail that some of his high school uh, compatriots, he was in high school when he did this, were talking about him. They were, I can imagine, right? 
So he had, he had shot his parents, and he was in jail for it, and, he, uh, and people were talking about him, gossiping about him, and he wrote a letter to the ed editor and uh, complaining about them talking about him. And he said, I'm basically a good person. I'm basically a good person. How dare you talk to me that way? How, how dare you talk about me that way? And that reveals the fundamental idolatry of our age, the idolatry of self. Right? The idolatry of self. We worship ourselves. And when we sin and we incur the displeasure of outside society, we will sometimes grovel, sometimes crawl, and say, well, I sinned against, I, I, yes, I did sin, but I sinned against my core values. I sinned against, uh, that's, and, and the phrase, there's a catechism class somewhere where everybody's taught how to talk this way. Because they'll say, uh, uh, they'll, they'll say things like this. They, they say that I, this, is not my, this is not who I am. This is not who I am. Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What comes out is, is revealing what's in. Right? You, when you jostle a glass, what spills on the table is what was in the glass. When, when it comes out, that reveals what's inside. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So the person says, okay, I'll forgive you for calling uh, me that name uh, because that wasn't the true you who was talking. And you say, no, no, it really was. I sinned, and I sinned all the way down. I shouldn't have called you that. I was trying to hurt you. I meant it at the time. I repented later. I shouldn't have meant it at the time. Would you please forgive me? Now, that's dealing with simply the sin. But if you called them that name and then deliberately broke something of theirs in your anger, now you have two things to do. The first is to seek forgiveness for the comment as in the first scenario, and the second is to make restitution, Exodus 22:12. And when you make restitution, you should add at least 20% to the value of whatever it was, Numbers 5, 7. Restitution includes restoring the loss that time introduces, which is why sometimes in the Old Testament you add 20% and other times you restore fourfold. What, what is the interest rate, in other words? Right, you, you're uh, restoring the thing that was broken, you're restoring the thing that was stolen, you're restoring the thing that you ruined, and you're restoring the downstream fruitfulness of that thing, whatever it was. You're, you're restoring the uh, productivity that they lost. Let's say it was a year uh, after, if, if you put something right after 20 years, then you ought to restore more than if you put it right after three weeks. So sometimes you're putting right simply a sin, a, relation, a relationship sin as when you call someone a name. Other times there are tangible consequences and you should make restitution. Now, in order for forgiveness proper to have occurred, and I'm, I'm using that as sort of a technical phrase, in order for forgiveness proper to occur, it is necessary for the offender to seek forgiveness and for the one who was wronged to extend it. If someone steals your car, you can't really run down the road after them yelling that you forgive them. It doesn't work. You're not conducting a transaction. Someone steals your car, you can't run down the road saying that you forgive them. The transaction of forgiveness is not really happening there. And if the offender truly repents, but the other person refuses to forgive, then reconciliation between them is impossible under that circumstance also. It takes two, in other words, for the transaction to be completed. Two people, the offender and the, the one offended, must conduct the transaction together in order for what I'm calling forgiveness proper to occur. 
But when everything is running smoothly, this is what it looks like. When both parties are playing, when both parties are involved as they ought to be, this is what it looks like. The one seeking forgiveness acknowledges his wrong, and he does so without pointing to all the extenuating circumstances. It was dark, they were big, sun was in my eyes, that's that sort of thing. The one seeking forgiveness acknowledges his wrong without any excuses. In doing this, he is asking, what, he's a, what this amounts to is he's asking the wronged party to make a promise. He's coming to the person that he wronged, and he said, I am asking you to promise me something. That's what a, that's what a request for forgiveness is. I'm asking you to promise me something. And the promise is, the promise being sought is that he will not, on a personal level, hold the offense against the one who committed it. You're asking the wronged party to make a promise that he will not, on a personal level, hold it against the person who committed the wrong. When the one extending the promise does so, when he says, I forgive you, he is in fact making that promise. He is, in fact, making that promise. I'm not, if we quarreled and you called me a name and, and then you come back and you seek forgiveness and I promise I'm not going to hold it against you, if we get into another quarrel three, month, month, three months from now, I'm not going to say, well, there was that time when you called me that name and then you throw it in their teeth. If you do that, you are breaking your word. If you, are, if you do that, you are, you are violating your promise. You made the promise. You forgave him. Now, I, I italicized the word personal above in the, on the outline. I, I italicized the word personal because the one forgiving may have other responsibilities. He may be wearing other hats in all of this that have to take the misbehavior into account as a boss, for example, or as a spouse, for example, or as an elder in the church, or as a witness in a trial. So let, let's say... Uh, Let's say that you forgive someone for something, but the prosecutor, independent of you, brings charges and, and you have to testify in the trial. If you tell what happened, you're not violating your problem. If you're acting as a witness in the trial, you're not violating what happened. If an employee sins against you as a boss and they seek your forgiveness and you, and you forgive them, and then you uh, don't hire them back, you fired them after the offense, and you don't hire them back, that's not a lack of forgiveness. That's not a lack of forgiveness. On a personal level, it means that you have no problem fellowshipping with them, have no problem worshiping with them, have no problem coming to the Lord's table together with them. That's what I mean by on a, on a personal level. There may be other uh, relationships, there may be complicated layers here, and you have to be careful that you're not sneaking in a personal lack of forgiveness under the heading of one of these other positions that you may hold. Now, if someone makes that promise and then in a subsequent quarrel resurrects the old offense, what he is doing is, is he's breaking his promise. And that is a new sin being added to the tangle. That's a new sin being added to the mix, requiring him to seek forgiveness. He needs to seek forgiveness. I promised you that I wouldn't throw that episode in your teeth, and here, I just did it. I broke my word to you. Please forgive me. So if someone has come to you and sought forgiveness for something, and you forgive them, and then later, on a personal level, in a personal tangle with, you know, a little edge in it, you throw that episode at them, you have broken your word, and you need to seek forgiveness from them for breaking your word. Now, when you do this, it's not a patch job. It's not to be a patch job. 
There's a stark difference between seeking forgiveness and trying to round up acceptance of your excuses. In the same way, it's often easier for us to, to accept an offender's excuses than it is to forgive him. Forgiveness presupposes genuine, deliberate wrong. And we want to say, I can't forgive that. He just said he did it on purpose. How can I forgive that? He said it was deliberate. Well, that's actually the only kind of thing you can forgive. You can't forgive accidents. You can pardon accidents, but you can't forgive an accident. I can't forgive that. He did it on purpose. But that's the only time you really can forgive. There's a stark difference between an inexcusable sin and an unforgivable one. All of them are inexcusable. All of them are inexcusable. That's what a sin is. A sin is something that has no excuse. Now, I want to be careful. Because we live in such a tumblesome world, it is often the case that our actions and our motives are mixed. In other words, perhaps a portion of what happened was excusable, while the rest of it was not. And as C.S. Lewis points out, when dealing with others, we tend to amplify the excusable parts of our own behavior and minimize the inexcusable parts. And when it comes to the faults of the other guy, we do the reverse. So what happens is there's a difference between snapping at the kids out of a clear blue sky and snapping at the kids after three days of a migraine headache and, and five times of asking them to please be quiet, right? So if you, uh, if you have the former scenario, you just, out of the blue, you snap at the kids. It's almost 100% just pure high-grade sin. If, if you have had the migraine and you've tried to approach it different ways and finally you go tip over into sin, there's sin there. That's the inexcusable part. And that's the part you must seek forgiveness for. But there were extenuating circumstances. But that's God's job to take into account. You don't take the extenuating circumstances into account at all. You have to discount for them all because our tendency is to amplify, to pump, to pump up all the extenuating circumstances to minimize our actual fault. In all of this, Christ requires of us absolutely honest weights and measures. We are required when it comes to our personal relationships with one another to have the same identical standard for ourselves that we have for others. That's what Jesus says when he says, judge not lest you be judged. The judgment with which you judge, you shall be judged. The standards you apply to others will be the standards that should be applied to you. You don't get to put your thumb on the scale when evaluating your sins against them and to not put your thumb on the scale when evaluating their sins against you. You may not. Jesus says, no, don't do it. And our tendencies, and here's, this is the, the fact of it, everybody here looks out at the world through their own eyes. And when you're looking out at the world through your own eyes, there's one character in, in the whole scene that you're not seeing very well. You're seeing everybody else. You can see the back of everybody else's head. You can see all the things that they did and said that led up to this clash. You can see everything about this except for what you're doing. God looks down on the whole thing and he sees every character. He sees everyone in the scene, including you. 
He sees what you're doing that, re- that helped ramp the whole thing up. He sees the way you, ex- he sees the look on your face. He sees the back of your head. He sees all of it. He sees you and the other guy. And the other guy sees everything about it except for himself. And this is why we get into the snarls we get in. So as you're dealing with troublesome relationships, there are three options that, that are possible with regard to this sort of thing. And two of them are legitimate. There are two options that are legitimate and one that's not. When someone has wronged you or irritated you, which is not necessarily the same thing, irritating you may not be wronging you, you may either confront it or cover it. You can confront it or cover it. What you may not do is complain about it to everybody else. You may not spread the word about what this person is doing that annoys you. If someone annoys you, if someone gets on the wrong side of you, if you have some misunderstanding or some understanding perhaps, you have some tangle, you have some bump with somebody, you may confront it or you may cover it, but you may not spread the word complaining about it to other people. When you confront it, and I want you to be careful here, When you confront it, you are doing what Jesus said to do in Matthew 18, 15. Jesus said, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. So Jesus says to go and confront. But also remember whether this scenario might uh, consider uh, where this scenario might end up and pursue confrontation sparingly. Pursue confrontation sparingly because the end of that process in Matthew 18 is church discipline. It's the other person being um, put out of the church and you don't want to escalate them taking your parking spot to that something that might end there. So you do it sparingly. And there's another reason for that and I'll come to in a moment. The other legitimate option is to cover it. Confront it in rare instances and cover it in the others. What do you you mean cover it? I mean forget about it. Forget about it. Above all things, 1 Peter 4.8 says, and above all things have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. And then in the ESV, that same verse says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Love one another earnestly. Remember in our text, be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Peter is saying, love one another fervently. Love one another earnestly. And that's a disposition that knows how to cover other people's sins in the right way. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. So here's the charge. This is the word of God. This is the word of God for you. Sweep the sins of others under the carpet. Sweep the sins of others under the carpet. Sweep the sins of those you live closely with, family members, close friends, roommates. Sweep their sins under the carpet. But it's got to be a magic carpet. Has to be a magic carpet. If your carpet, after six months of doing this, looks like the rolling hills of the Palouse, (laughs) it's not a magic carpet. It's sweeping things under the carpet in the way that is 
condemned by our proverb. Let's not just sweep things under the carpet. So this is a magic carpet. It does not matter that there's a multitude of sins under there. If it's a magic carpet, if it's the carpet of fervent love, if it's the carpet of fervent love, it doesn't matter there's a multitude of sins under there. It never gets lumpy. It never gets lumpy. It dissolves everything that is swept under there. And the word for multitude here, love covers a multitude of sins. The word for multitude is the word we get plethora from. It's that we get the word plethora. There's lots. It means large number. It means crowd. It means throng. You can't believe my roommate. It's, just, it's every day. It's, a, it's 50 things a day. Well, that sounds like a multitude. Sounds like a throng, doesn't it? Sounds like you need to love your roommate. Sounds like you need to. Now, if, if what is happening is he, you know, he's, your roommate is a teller at the bank and he's embezzling stuff and he's telling you about it, or if it's, if it's Ten Commandments stuff, then Matthew 18 earlier, confront. There are certain things you must confront. If you're talking about basic black letter violations of God's law, then conf confront it. But if you're t we're talking about his breakfast bowl left in the sink again, cover it. Cover it. How many, how many times? Well, it's interesting. It's a massive army bigger than 70 times 7. A multitude, a throng, is bigger than 70 times 7, which is in Matthew 18, 22. Now, when Jesus says to confront, that's in Matthew 18, 15. And then right after that confront it thing is where uh, Jesus gives the famous answer to Peter. Right after that is, how many times do I forgive my brother? Seven, up to seven times, Peter says, trying to be magnanimous. And Jesus says, up to 70 times seven. And Jesus does not mean 491 pow right in the kisser. <laughs> because if you're counting, if you're counting and you know that you're 485, you're not doing it at all, right? You're not doing it at all. You're, you just got a lumpy carpet. So the car this carpet, the carpet of an earnest and fervent love, dissolves everything that gets under there. How do you know that you're doing this? How do you know that you're doing this? The answer is that three days later, you can't remember what it was. That's the answer. Three days later, you can't remember what it was. Why, why does bitterness have such a good memory? When you're talking to married couples and, they're, they, they, and they say, and then there was that conversation five years, three months, and two days ago. When you said, and then they quote the whole thing verbatim. You said, and then I said, and then you said. Why, why, does, why do people have photographic memories when it comes to resentment? Well, bitterness has, has such a sharp memory because bitterness has great study habits. Review, 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 review. That's why bitterness remembers all that stuff. And remember that the passage about 70 times 7 is just a few verses below the passage about confronting your brother. Keep your ratios in balance. Covering is far to be preferred over confronting. Covering is far to be preferred over confronting. Covering it should be your default assumption, but only as you're loving fervently. Only as you're loving fervently. And confronting happens when it is obviously necessary. And remember the, the lesson that Paul gives us in this. If a brother sins, those who are spiritual should restore him, being mindful of themselves in a spirit of gentleness. 
lest they also be tempted, as he says in Galatians 6.1. When you are mad about it, when you're mad about something, you are not qualified to correct anybody. When you're upset, you're not qualified to correct them. And when you're not mad about it, you're not motivated to correct the other person. And so you need to make the decision when you're calm, not motivated, you need to say, does the word of God require me to confront my brother? I'm not going to go confront him because emotionally I feel like it. I must vent somehow. No. So here's the problem. How do I do it? I referred to earlier a dilemma, a problem when it comes to forgiveness. This dilemma that I referred to earlier is caused by an offender who refuses to acknowledge what he or she did or refuses to acknowledge what he or she is doing in an ongoing way. How can you forgive someone who has not asked for it? How can you forgive, how can the transaction happen if they've not asked for it? We have to break this into two portions. According to our text, what is the basis of our own forgiveness before God? When God forgives us, what did he do? God forgives us, it says, for Christ's sake. And it says that we're to, we're to imitate that in how we forgive one another. So God forgave us for Christ's sake, and we're to imitate that. But what Christ did was accomplish 2,000 years before you acknowledged your sin, 2,000 years before you committed it, and on top of everything else, 2,000 years before you were born. That's how God in Christ forgave you. God in Christ forgave you in the death of Jesus. Everything about your forgiveness was settled with the exception of your experience of that forgiveness. All the, all the preconditions for that forgiveness were settled. God's decision to forgive, Christ's purchase of your redemption price, it was all settled. The only thing lacking in your forgiveness was your experience of that cleansing. And that leads to the second part. We experience the forgiveness of God when the subjective burden of our guilt is removed and removed forever. This is when the transaction proper happens. This is when forgiveness proper happens. So when you repent and turn to the Lord, let's say it was three years ago, you repent and turn to the Lord, that's where the transaction proper, that's where the forgiveness proper occurs. God has forgiven you and you experience that forgiveness that he purchased for you. So we're to imitate that. Say that somebody has wronged you and has not repented of it yet. They've wronged you, but they've not repented of it yet. Can you forgive them? Yes. Can they experience that forgiveness? No. Right, you can forgive them without them experiencing that forgiveness. So yes and no. Think of it this way. You take the forgiveness that you have determined and settled to give to them the moment they ask for it. Make sure that it's packed well, put it in a box, and wrap it up in the gaudiest gift wrap you have. Their forgiveness is right there. Keep it in a place by the front door. You have a special place for it near the front door. And you watch the driveway the way the father in the parable of the prodigal son watched the road. You look for them, you're, you're, you're eager for this. The transaction has not yet happened, but you, for your part, are on tiptoe wanting it to happen. And it's already right here. Everything is here. They don't have, do they have the present yet? No, do they have the gift that you have for them yet? No, they don't have it. They don't have it. But do you have it? Yes, you have it. Now, the terrible thing is when they don't have it and neither do you. 
Right? What God wants us to do is be disposed, to be on tiptoe, to be eager, to be looking for the opportunity to forgive those that wronged us. Or sometimes those that we believe have wronged us and we believe falsely. We're, we're, we, we, we have it all wrong. They didn't really wrong us. And part of the reason we think they wronged us is because we're not ready to forgive them. If we get this everything all wrapped up, ready to forgive them, we might discover, you know, I don't think they actually did anything wrong. I think they just, it, what happened just hurt my feelings. So I, I don't think that was, I don't think they disobeyed the Lord in what they did. But you're not going to get to that point until you make a serious effort to imitate the Lord, the God, God the Father, and the Lord Jesus in being prepared to forgive others. So, as God in Christ forgave us, because Christ has forgiven us, we are enabled by the Spirit to have fervent love for each other. And in that love, we can cover a multitude of offenses, and we can confront when we need to. We can cover routinely a multitude of offenses. And that means our congregation, that means our community life together, that means our life together as a body of Christ is going to be picked up. We, you know, we, I think our life together is orderly. I think our doctrine is orderly. We have a statement of faith. We have a set form of worship. We know, what's going, we know what to expect when we come on Sundays. We, I think we have a disciplined, orderly church. And I'm grateful for that. I like things tidy. I like things tidy. But as a pastor, as your pastor, I want what I see in many places, but I don't see in every place yet. I want to see this place clean. Clean. Clean in every corner. Clean in every closet. Clean in every cupboard. Clean in every back room. Clean. And that's not going to happen unless we are imitating God in Christ, unless we are cultivating fervent love for one another, unless we have kindness and tenderheartedness ready to bestow on others, and we are eager, longing, wanting to forgive. Eager, longing, and wanting to forgive, because we want to be like Jesus. If we are like Jesus, that's the disposition. That's the way. So can forgiveness happen without repentance? Well, yes and no. When forgiveness actually happens, when the transaction, when the full transaction happens, that is where relationships are reconciled. That's where things are put back together. That's where things are growing up into the perfect man that the Lord would have us become. Our Father in God, we thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you for the forgiveness that you've offered to us through Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that you've presented it to us in a way and in a model that is possible for us to imitate. We know that we can't duplicate it, but nevertheless, you've told us to imitate it, and so we want to do that. Father, we pray that your spirit would be active in our midst. I pray that you would be giving us a fervent love for one another. I pray that you'd give us kindness and tenderhearted toward one another. Father, if there are any strained or tense relationships here in this room, as I'm sure there are, I pray that you'd use this message to help dissolve that tension, help dissolve those problems. Father, I pray that we would be a people who are filled with your joy, who are filled with your work, who are filled with your kindness. Amen. In the Old Covenant, only priests ate in the holy presence of God. The meat of the sacrifices and the showbread was considered holy and therefore off-limits to most Israelites. Only holy men could eat the holy food. But in the New Covenant, God has poured out his Holy Spirit on all flesh. 
not just Jews descended from Aaron, but all tribes and Gentiles also, not just men, but women and children also. But this is no downgrade. This is entirely an upgrade. The food is more holy because it is the body and the blood of our Lord. The presence of God is more holy because he dwells in all who believe. And so Paul says, if anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. In other words, those who eat in the presence of God are still priests. Only priests can eat in the presence of God. But the priesthood has expanded significantly. And so Peter says, you also, as living stones, as being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So like the old covenant priesthood, you offer sacrifices and then you eat in the presence of God. You offer spiritual sacrifices and then you eat spiritual food. But this means that every one of you have a spiritual and priestly calling. You're not just priests on Sundays. If you are priests here, then you are priests as you leave here. You're priests when you get up tomorrow morning and head to work, go to school, make sandwiches, do dishes, change diapers, file paperwork, do math homework, swing a hammer, enter data, talk to customers, and so on. Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. You present your bodies as living sacrifices here, but then you take those same bodies out there and they are still living sacrifices. They are still holy and acceptable to God by the mercies of God. So God is equipping you here for the task that he is calling you to out there. Therefore, it's a holy and priestly calling. You've been forgiven in order to get to work. You are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he gave thanks. So let's pray together. Our God and Father, we praise you and we thank you that our sins have been washed away and you've made us whiter than snow. Father, we thank you that you've done this so that we might forgive those who have wronged us and sinned against us. And we thank you that you've done this so that we might be your workmanship. We might be your workers. And so, Father, we pray that you would bless us now because we give thanks to you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 When we look at the wrongs that have been done to us and when we focus our attention on the pain that it's caused, those wrongs only get bigger and bigger and seem more and more impossible to forgive. How could I ever forgive that? But that's why Paul says, don't look at the wrong, look at Christ. What have you been forgiven? That's where you're supposed to look. What have you been forgiven? How have you been forgiven? How big is that? And when you look and you see what you've been forgiven, all the wrongs that have been, been done to you shrink and they get smaller and smaller and smaller and say, oh, I can, that's easy. I can take care of that. Because you are to forgive as you've been forgiven by God in Christ. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, who has loved us and has given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts now and establish you in every good word and work. And amen.